Hello and welcome to the ESVS podcast. My name is Susanne Stokmans. Today we are going to dive deeper into the virtual vascular textbook chapter dedicated to late complications and surveillance after EVAR. In this chapter, a structured overview of the mechanisms of EVAR failure, available solutions for late complications, and current surveillance strategies are discussed. We are pleased to have the two authors of this chapter, Dr. Frederico Bastos Gonzalves and Dr. Hans Verhagen, with us today. Dr. Frederico Bastos Gonzalves works in the Hospital de Santa Marta in Lisbon, and Dr. Hans Verhagen works in the Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam. Both of them have a lot of experience in endovascular abdominal aortic aneurysm treatment. Thank you for joining us today in this podcast. You're very welcome. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Gonzalves, what is the definition of a late complication after EVAR? How often do they occur? And what are the most important and most frequently encountered late complications? You can say that any complication that actually occurs after the perioperative period can be considered a late complication. Some of them are already present just immediately after the operation, like a type 2 endoleak. But when you talk about late complications, you usually mean those that arise later on during follow-up. We know that they're common and they represent actually the main drawback of EVAR. After EVAR, you can have a number of possible complications And they can be more or less divided into the following groups. There are complications that result in changes in the anatomy, especially in the sealing zones, but also in the aneurysm sac itself. And this is caused by tissue interactions with the implants and progression of disease. They may also result of device failure, such as disconnection of components in modular stent graft or graft disruption from fatigue. And then there are other factors that are unrelated to anatomy or the device. And those could be, for example, graft infection. So the exact frequencies of these complications really depend on your case mix and the literature that you are analyzing. It also depends on what period of time you're looking at, because there's a clear trend towards less and less complications and fewer reinterventions as you look at literature over time. So we've become better at doing these procedures. Technology has also become better. There is a drawback, however, because uh, as we are getting better at treating these aneurysms and also at treating cardiovascular disease in general, the life expectancy of these patients is increasing. That adds an additional aspect to follow-up, which is the very late complications that arise in very elderly patients. If you're talking about estimates, I would say that in today's practice, you would expect about 30 to 40% of patients to present with some sort of complication at five years. Fortunately, many of them don't require any repair. So reintervention rates at five years are a lot lower and now would be maybe between 10 and 15% in most cases, which is still significant, but a lot less than it was 15 or 20 years ago, for sure. Just to finish off, since we hardly intervene nowadays in type 2 window leaks, the most frequent causes of these secondary interventions are now related to the iliac components, although much of our attention is focused on the proximal ceiling zone. I think that's an aspect that we also need to improve. And how can we improve these complications in the iliac landing zone? Well, it, it all starts with the planning and patient selection. It wasn't unusual until recently that you would accept a suboptimal ceiling zone at the iliac end. And you wouldn't do that so easily for the proximal. And maybe that explains why you are having these increased complications in the iliacs. Also, the occlusions are something to look out for. 
both uh, Stentcraft materials have an associated risk of occlusions, which is not always the same. And the underlying anatomy is also, also very important for that. So uh, once you get lower and lower profile <clears throat> devices, you treat sicker and sicker iliac vessels, and those are more prone to occlusion. There's no straight answer. How do you prevent that? But we need to pay more attention to the iliac component end of the procedure and not only to the proximal end. Now let's dive a little bit deeper into the endoleaks. Dr. Verhagen, what are the incidence rates of the different types of endoleaks after EVAR and when and how should they be treated? Probably all people know that we have divided those endoleaks in one, two, three, and possibly four and five, four being porosity of the graft, which is very seldomly seen in most parts of the world, although people in Japan still complain about type four endoleaks. Type five endoleaks are kind of defined as as sacroth without visible endoleak. That is probably is an endoleak that, that we just can't see, but it but it's there. Although nowadays there may be other potential causes for sacroth without endoleak. Maybe one of the most interesting at the moment because we don't know too much about it. Maybe part of the biologics or immunosystem or genetics of the particular patient. But to talk about the more common ones, uh, the the 1A, the 1B, two and three, yeah, they, they still exist. And, and although they are less frequent than we used to see them, they're still relatively frequent. So starting off with the type one, so one A being a leak at the proximal part and B at the distal part, a lot of type one endoleaks, especially if they occur after like five years or longer, it's probably progression of disease more than failure of the graft. So it's a failure of treatment for sure. But I'm not entirely sure if we can blame the graft for that or the body around it. As we all know, the, the really long-term follow-up data are quite scarce still. But if you see data from preferably one particular graft over five years, you see a slow increase in type 1A endoleaks, especially after like eight, nine, and 10 years, just because the body around it is, is dilating, not so much that the graft is failing. Interestingly enough, we've done a study quite recently on looking at those dynamics of the uh, proximal neck over time. Because we use oversized self-expanding stents, we usually see quite a bit of expansion of the neck diameter over time. But the question we really want to answer was that if the nominal diameter of the graft is reached and the radial force is kind of gone, would that stop further dilatation of the neck? Or is it a process that is unstoppable and, and it will go on to a type 1A for most patients. And fortunately enough that at least up to six or seven years, you see that the dilatation goes rather quickly the, the first and probably second year. But after that, when the nominal diameter of the graft is about reached, the dilation goes much, much slower. And it basically stops when, when that nominal diameter is reached. So fortunately, it's better than we kind of had feared for. Uh, which is really good news, I guess. But still, after many, many years, you will see an increase in uh, in type 1A endoleak. Type 1B is probably the same. Like we just discussed, it's interesting to see that people were very focused on the proximal part and you needed, in general, about one and a half centimeter of seal and you needed hooks to, to keep the graph there. While for the distal part, people weren't interested. And like Federico was just saying, people just landed the graft somewhere in the common iliac, probably about one centimeter or so in the iliacs and thought it was enough, only having radial force to keep it there, uh, no hooks there, 
or active fixation and maybe less favorable structure of the uh, of the anatomy structure of the vessel and we've learned from that but type 1b is indeed increasing because we didn't spend so much time on it and nowadays we we kind of look better at it so then if we go to the type 2 endoleaks definitely the most common endoleak we see that's a whole different discussion. And that's actually quite well described in, in the chapter that we're talking about now. From the start on, it's probably about 20%. So after implantation, about 20% of the patients has a type 2 endoleak. Maybe it's actually much, much higher because as the open surgeons know that if you do open aneurysm surgery, all patients have some lumbers to sew over, right? And the vast majority. So it's likely that immediately after implantations, those are still open. But in general, you know, after 30 days, your, your first CT scan, about 20% of the patients or so will have a type 2 endoleak. What I find striking, Fred, is that if you see the, the newer uh, endografts and the newer studies actually have much higher type 2 endoleak rate than the former ones, as in double, as in 40 to 50%. And, and I'd find it hard to believe that it really that it's caused by that particular graft that is tested. I, I think it is something else like, you know, either better imaging or thinner slices for your CT scan or different protocols of, of when to give the contrast. It's, I think it's unlikely to say that one graft, a newer graft will give you more type two than, than a graft that is 10 years old. What, what do you think? I, I think it's biased. Yeah, I agree. I think it's biased as well. So then if we look at the natural history of most type 2 endoleaks is that the, the 20% will probably go into the 5 to 10% after about a year or so, and that will usually be quite steady in, into that range. What I always find very interesting is, a, is what we call a secondary type 2 endoleak. So a patient that didn't have a type 2 endoleak for like one or two years, and then suddenly at new imaging has a type 2 endoleak, which is from a theoretical and anatomical standpoint is, is kind of hard to believe for me, it's hard to swallow. How, how can you how can you have a lumbar that is occluded and that reopens after some time? I, I find that a very strange thing. So either we didn't have the same imaging or we didn't look at it, or I don't know. I, I think it's very hard to believe that something that is occluded reopens after two years. And, and that makes me quite suspicious. But again, there's so much unknowns there that uh, that makes the, that particular area really interesting to, to think about. But in general, the most type 2 endoleaks will vanish and the vast majority will not give any problems. And only, only a few will run into trouble, meaning either sec increase and, and nobody likes sec increase and, and potentially rupture. But the chances of a rupture solely due to a type 2 endoleak are, are so incredibly low. I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible. But I'm just saying it's so very, very rare that it's only that particular type 2 endoleak that in general, they, they don't give clinical problems. Then the type 3 endoleak. Type 3 endoleak is also, you know, it's usually, it's either a hole in the graft or it's a dislocation of, of the limbs. Both of those are getting increasingly rare, I must say, although not impossible. With the older grafts, we tend to see holes in the graft after a couple of years, holes that are actually quite difficult to diagnose. It was usually a coincidence when we did the conversion that we just noticed that there was quite a big hole in the graft, usually caused by the stent, one of the stents that was just rubbing through the, the fabric. Uh, and because in one particular position, that hole was closed, you usually didn't see it on the CT scan, but when you just open the sack and, and manipulate the graft, you see that's actually quite big. 
So, so that fortunately doesn't happen too often anymore. It's not impossible, but it's it's not too common. Limb dislocation, also we learned a lot, as in you just need a lot of overlap, especially in large aneurysms, or maybe I should say aneurysms with a large lumen, a lot of possibility for the graft to move. You really need the maximum overlap between one limb and the other. Otherwise, they, they will fill after, you know, after years. But those things are, are relatively rare, and that is way beyond the, the 5% that we just mentioned for the other ones. And coming back on type 2 endoleaks, when and how should we treat them? There's really not, no consensus on this. There's, there's guidelines, and the guidelines say that if you have a type 2 endoleak and sec increase of one centimeter, that we should think about treatment. I'm absolutely okay with that, but the issue is that it's... Uh, it's usually not so much the type 2 endoleak. It's usually something else. Treating a type 2 endoleak will not stop the growth of the aneurysm. So the only thing I advocate is just, just think a little longer and don't think about, you know, set growth. I see a type 2. Let's treat the type 2 because we can. And then you think you're out of trouble. There's, it's usually a lot more complicated than that. Personally, I, I never treat type 2 endoleaks, but I realize that I'm the minority here. And Dr. Kulzalvis, what is your opinion on type 2 endoleaks? If there's significant growth, I will make an effort to diagnose any other kind of endoleak that may be uh, hiding behind a type 2, a wolf in sheep's clothes. And then I would think about the right treatment, because we know that uh, current strategies for treating a type 2 endoleaks by endovascular means frequently fail. They fail as in they don't stop the aneurysm from growing. And a lot of the studies that look into this, they actually use as endpoints that you don't see the endoleak anymore. But that could be because of artifacts, that can be a number of reasons. But the best endpoint would be rupture. Second best would be, does it stop growing or not? And frequently it doesn't, no matter what you do endovascularly. So if you really want to treat the patient and get rid of the problem, probably you need to think about conversion. And that only applies to reasonably good risk patients, which is not always the case in this population. So it's a problem. But yes, I'm not so fundamentalist in the sense that I never treat those type 2, but I'm very conservative. I'm not saying I'm not treating the patient. I'm, I'm not treating the type 2. I, I basically have the same philosophy as, as Federico. I just look very hard for other things, probably more important things. And that usually means proximal and distal sealing zones and making sure that there's no holes or stitch holes uh, in the graft. And there's a couple of strategies to, to, to do that. So we know that if you treat type 2 endoleaks, that in general, the, the, the vast majority of those patients will just keep on growing. It just doesn't do what you want it to do. On the other hand, if you treat these patients with extension of the proximal seal through a fenestrated cuff, extension of the distal part by uh, extensions and make sure that there's no stitch hole bleeding by doing relining of the graft. About half of these patients keep on growing while there cannot be anything else. Maybe the, a part of these patients that grow, keep on growing whatever you do unless you convert them. And it is not due to an endoleak, but it's probably due to either biologics inside the sac or genetics, or I don't know, something that's happening there, what prevents it from shrinking, whatever you do. And, and that's a really interesting point. And then we're closely going to a real step forward, I guess. If we find out why that is happening, we might find why some people 
just do much better after EVAR than other patients. And, and that is becoming really, really interesting and, and potentially really step forward here. I think you're absolutely right on this. I also believe it's a biological issue. It has to do with the patient, not uh, the endoleak itself. And, and to take this a little further, so what we have described briefly in our chapter, but, but not so much because that was 2021 and now it's 2023, is the whole sex shrinkage phenomenon after uh, implantation, right? So there's now a couple of studies that all show exactly the same results. And it's usually large studies that patients that show sex shrinkage after one year do much better than if you have sex stability after one year or sex increase. On first hand, that may look logic, but, but maybe it isn't because... It's not that the ones that have sac increase massively die from ruptures, not at all. They die from other causes. So yeah, they have less secondary interventions if you have sac shrinkage, but they also live longer. Their survival is better if you're in the group that has sac shrinkage after one year compared to stable sac and increase. So why is that? That's really interesting, especially because all of us try to think about ways to get as, as someone that has a stable sec or, or an increasing sec to do something to get that patient in the group of sex shrinkage, expecting that you live longer. But personally, I think that the reason why your sex shrink is biology, and that decides whether your survival is better or worse than the other group. And I don't think it would be possible for a patient kind of to jump the lines, right? From jump from one line to the other, but that's just my gut feeling. And, and again, this goes into biology of probably the sac or the tissue, I, I don't know, but something there decides much more about the future of, of su treatment success than we think it does. That is fascinating, and I'm curious if we will understand these factors associated with sac shrinkage in the future. Now let's go back to the chapter. Dr. Gonzalves, can you tell us more about the adverse anatomical characteristics for EVAR and their importance? Yeah, of course. We all know that anatomy is a critical point for success after EVAR. I guess the most well-recognized anatomical risk factor is neck length. This applies to the proximal neck, but also to the distal neck or the iliacs. In any case, this has been one of the main focus of companies trying to tackle the issue of neck length and improving the proximal and distal fixations. And they've done this by improving fixation, like uh, with barbs and hooks, by improving the delivery systems, finding alternative strategies for visceral or renal incorporation by fenestrations or chimneys so you can treat shorter necks or no necks. And even endosutures have been developed to fix the problem of short necks. But the length of the neck is not all. Calcifications, the shape of the neck, the absolute diameter of the aneurysm, or as Hans uh, said, uh, the luminal diameter, probably more important even, the iliac diameter, iliac angulation, all these anatomical characteristics have been associated with complications. Pointing out that neck thrombus is not part of these uh, anatomical risk factors, and we did some research on that, and usually it's piled together in the same group as neck calcification, but it's a whole different thing, and it's actually conferring a no special risk after EVA. The problem nowadays is that there's no real precise way to integrate all these factors in together. One thing we know, you can usually get reasonable and durable results if one adverse anatomical feature is present, but if more than one is present, the risk 
actually rises exponentially. I'm talking about if you have a short neck and nothing else, everything else is favorable, the results will probably be okay. But if you have a short neck and angulation or a very large lumen, the risk really rises. And also important to note, just because a specific patient is within IFU, it doesn't necessarily mean low risk because these IFUs are created by the industry based on their own expectations on how the graft should perform. And it's really not a binary thing. Even within IFU, you have reasonably high risk situations. For example, a wide neck, like a 32 millimeter proximal neck, has like twice the risk of seal failure as a 25 millimeter neck, and they're both within IFU. Same thing about a neck that is 10 millimeters long, has a much higher risk of a type 1A endoleak than a neck that is 25 millimeters long, but they both can be within IFU. And another good example of this is very large aneurysms because they increase the chance of the, the graft displacement and migration or disconnection. We believe this is due to the space that is left inside the aneurysm of newly formed thrombus, which is not very solid, so it allows movement. There's nothing on IFU regarding this aspect. I, I assume that a very large aneurysm has much higher risk than one that has almost no space and the graft is adjusted to the outer thrombus and it doesn't move over time. So to kind of wrap up the answer, yeah, anatomy is a major risk factor for complications. So it's a, an important factor for patient selection. It conditions your outcomes and the durability of the procedure. And of course, neck length is really at the top of this list. But anatomy also has implications for follow-up. If you treat patients with very hostile anatomy, probably you need to be more stringent in follow-up. We actually believe that it's even more important to assess how you use the anatomical substrate of the patient rather than just looking at preoperative anatomy. And that you can do by looking at the 30-day CTA. There, you see how well you took advantage of the available length of seal, for example, how well you implanted the graft. And that really has a strong prognostic influence, at least for the first few years after the procedure. I, I totally agree. And that last point you hit on is actually quite interesting again, isn't it? Because all the risk profiles were always done according to the preoperative CT scan. And looking back, that really is quite a, a simple and simplistic way of looking looking at risks, isn't it? it? It's all about what happens after implantation and not before, because you can have a great neck, but if you don't take advantage of it, it's worth nothing. And it's really strange that that people always looked at the preoperative CT and not what have you actually achieved. I, I certainly believe that the first postoperative CT is probably the most important CT that you have of that particular patient, uh, if you at least look at stratifying patients and, and risk management. When we talk about risk management, I have a case that I want to present to you. Dr. Gonsalves, in a patient with a triple A, which can be treated with EVAR, but who also has a bilateral 25 millimeters common iliac artery aneurysm, what endovascular solution would you recommend for distal landing zones? It depends on multiple things. I would generally prefer to offer patients a durable repair that preserves pelvic circulation as much as possible. So for me, it's kind of difficult to sacrifice healthy vessels. However, it is something to consider that there's cost 
And there's complexity in these uh, hypogastric preservation strategies that have to be taken into account. And we know that these bell-bottom solutions really increase the risk of late endoleaks. It's really difficult to say, in general, I would do this always. Another alternative, of course, is to preserve one hypogastric artery and sacrifice the other by doing an iliac branch uh, device on one side and occlusion and extension to the external iliac on the other side, knowing that there's a high risk of buttocks claudication and a low risk of a potentially devastating consequence of pelvic necrosis or colon necrosis. It's low, but it's there. So to be honest, I would much rather always preserve the uh, hypogastric circulation bilaterally. I would look at the case, I would look at the caliber of these hypogastric arteries, the existence of obvious pelvic collaterals, the fitness of the patient, the life expectancy, etc. Then I'd have a lengthy discussion with the patient and explain all the options and then come up with a joint decision. I would say sometimes it's acceptable to compromise and use a bell bottom, simplifying the procedure a lot, especially in acute cases and frail patients. This doesn't compromise a future iliac branch if it fails. You just need to follow these patients closely and be aware you may need to intervene. So in the end, it must be an individualized decision. Uh, that's my opinion on it. What do you think, Hans? Yeah, I, I totally agree. In order to get buttock claudication, you have to walk, right? And and some of our patients yeah. are just not that mobile. Probably quite a bit of patients, you can occlude one and keep the other one open without them noticing it, making the the whole procedure a lot easier. And you know, one of the very important principles of vascular surgery in general is don't do more than absolutely necessary, right? Because every extra step you do can cause extra chances of, of complication. I think I would, in general, go for one hypogastric with an IBD and the other one, usually you can get away with a, a large limb knowing that you might have to come back in the years to follow. But that is something you can discuss with a patient, whether he or she thinks that's a problem. So I, I very seldomly do two IBDs in one patient, especially at the same time. But on the other hand, I almost never occlude them on both sides in one patient at the same time. So there's usually some somewhere in between. And then off to the next case, what would be your choice of surgical approach in a patient with ruptured AAA after previous EVAR and a visible type 1A endoleak? It's, it's always going to be a difficult uh, decision here. So it depends on, on a lot of things. Fortunately, ruptures after EVAR tend to present a bit more stable than primary ruptures. First off, I would rule out a possible endo option. If there's a reasonable endo option, I would probably do that. And that could uh, be simply just a cuff or a limb extension. So if there's a, a reasonable endo solution, I think that's better for the patient even if it's a temporary solution, but get the patient out of the acute situation. That's a basic principle. So even if there's no good endo option, I would still consider the use of um, temporary balloon occlusion. That really facilitates stability. It makes you more relaxed because you can take the time you need to fix the problem if, you, if, if the patient crashes. And you can also do it with open surgery. And I've done this a few times, and it's very useful because uh, in this scenario, having something that you can easily just inflate and clamp if you need is very reassuring. It makes you a lot more comfortable during the procedure. If I was to do open, I would 
almost always go transperitoneal, expose the cruise of the diaphragm and prepare for a super cilia clamp before actually exploring the infrarenal neck. Depending on the graft, if you have no suprarenal fixation, then conversion is a lot easier because usually those grafts will just pop out. If this is not the case, then you have to choose whether you want to take out the entire proximal end of the graft or if you can leave it in place. And you can actually use that and integrate it into your anastomosis, making it like a sandwich. If you want to take the suprarenal stent out, then you try the syringe uh, trick to sort of resheath the proximal end, or you can just use wire cutters and just destroy the proximal stents and then it's bits and pieces that you can take out. Some people are advocates of uh, partial graft preservation. I think that's a reasonable alternative, especially in the distal end, as long as you can incorporate the graft into the suture, but also taking bites of the actual wall of the iliacs so that you were sure there's no, not going to be any more issues with those iliacs. Because sometimes they are very deep and it's hard to pull out. It depends on the graft. I would not forget the cell saver on these cases. They can bleed quite significantly and uh, have a lot of blood products prepared and have a very good ICU. So it's something that you should do really in high volume centers. And it's probably wiser to transfer a patient with a ruptured EVAR to be treated where there's experience on this. So now we talked about the post-operative CT scan and about follow-up. And I want to talk a bit more about this subject. The 2019 ESVS guidelines recommend a restricted surveillance strategy based on risk stratification according to the findings of the first post-operative 30-day CT scan and lifelong follow-up with the CT scan at least every five years and more frequent imaging if necessary. It is known that there is a lot of variability in surveillance regimes among centers. And I am curious to know your opinion about the best follow-up protocol. Surveillance is another really interesting topic. We've done EVAR for almost 30 years now, and the surveillance programs are still quite stringent, not very well scientifically based. It's been published several times that people that do not follow the surveillance programs are actually, in general, not worse off. You, you may ask yourself, why are we doing it at all? So you're, you're talking about the two, 2019 ECS guidelines, but it's actually a, a proposal. It's not a recommendation. Right? And I fully agree with that proposal. And I, I think it makes sense to finally make an important step in at least finding a subgroup of patients that don't need this follow-up surveillance program, at least for the, for the first five years. And that is based on the first CT scan. We talked about that. The problem is that not a lot of people dare doing it. And that is because the science behind it is, is quite slim still. So if you fail, do you think you're protected by the guidelines that you do that? Or do people think you're doing some sort of experiment and you're may, you may be liable? Although it's so inefficient. So it's really a strange situation, but people struggle with it. Dr. Gonzalez, what is your opinion about this topic? I, I agree with everything Hans just said. But I would like to stress a few things. The issue of follow-up has been really imprinted into every one of us. If you're not doing follow-up, your colleagues will look upon you as if you are a criminal. Because it's it's been so put into our minds that there's complications. We have to find these complications. We have to treat them. It's not so simple as that. Proof that it's not so simple as that is that all these very large population studies based on 
national registries have shown exactly that patients who are not compliant with follow-up have at least as good survival, if not better, than patients who are followed very closely. But they have less interventions, less suffering, and they cost less money. Yeah, if I was to convince the, the, the vascular society today to start doing follow-up, if it had never been done, based on the data that we have available, it would be impossible. The only reason why we do it is because it's imprinted into our heads. Having said this, I also think that there's patients who have real benefit in surveillance. And the way I look at this is that we should look more closely at what the oncologists do for cancer patients. Not every cancer patient has yearly follow-ups they selectively choose patients who are at high risk of recurrence of cancer to image regularly unless there are symptoms. And we should probably do the same. We should select high-risk patients and follow them closely and leave the rest alone unless they have symptoms. The other thing is that we need to acknowledge that complications will occur even in low-risk patients, even in patients who are followed. So it's, it's really a complicated problem and it's overly simplistic to think that we can solve it by just offering CTAs every year to everyone. It's very difficult to, to create high-level evidence for this because of the delay to have a complication. It may take several years. So if you are testing strategies in a randomized setting, it will take maybe five to 10 years before you have any results. And 10 years after that, people will say, ah, completely worthless because these graphs were, you know, they fall apart or this and that. So it, all we can do is rely on observational data of large collaborations. And, and at some point, we need to kind of decide what's reasonable. This is a very interesting discussion, and I'm looking forward to find out the future of follow-up after Ivar. Thank you very much for a very interesting discussion. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you again for your time. We really discussed many interesting topics today, and I'm sure that all of our listeners have learned something of you today. I would recommend all of our listeners to read the complete virtual vascular chapter on this topic, which is available to all members in the e-library on the ESVS website. We will be back soon with more ESVS podcasts. Make sure to follow our socials to be in the loop of next releases. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.